0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, David Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. You can host the best backyard barbecue. If I asked you to think about the Arctic, what comes to mind? For most of us, it's probably this vast white snowy expanse. Perhaps maybe even some polar bears, which of course do live in the Arctic. Well, for now at least. And penguins, which interestingly do not live in the Arctic and never have. Suffice to say, the average American doesn't know much about the Arctic besides the basics. It's cold and it's up north. But would it surprise you to learn that the Arctic is actually a really important part of our national security strategy? And that lots of countries, including, yes, Russia, share a similar interest? Last month, I was able to sit down with two experts in Arctic security. One, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, and the other, an academic who studies the Arctic full-time. To understand why so many militaries are so interested in the Arctic, and why many activists are actually in favor of a demilitarized Arctic, you have to understand what's happening there first. For that, we turn to Marisol Maddox, Senior Arctic Analyst at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute.
1: For homeland defense and continental defense, the Arctic is really geostrategically important because of some of the types of missiles that are being developed, like hypersonic missiles and cruise missiles, um, to have radar systems that are able to detect them as they're coming over the curvature of the earth, right? So we really need to be modernizing some of the, the North American aerospace defense, the, the system that we have so that we're able to have over the horizon radar to be able to detect these missiles that are traveling faster with more maneuverability than more traditional missiles. So there's, there's that side of it. But then also you know with the exercise that's happening right now in the norwegian arctic which is cold response 2022 that is really about um you know the the nato article 5 which is that collective defense article of of the treaty where if one of our allies is attacked that we will respond and that we have the ability to respond and Norway is a neighbor to to Russia. They have a a massive uh, border with with Russia and Sweden and Finland, while they're not in NATO, they are very valuable partners and they um, also have a border with Russia. And so these exercises are really about being able to to demonstrate that we have the ability to, to respond um, just in, in case something does happen. But at, at this time, I don't think it seems likely that Russia would expand beyond Ukraine. But all of this is just partially because the Arctic is becoming more accessible, right? like new sea lanes are being exposed. The the period in which they're navigable is extending. There's new resources that are becoming available, like minerals and oil and gas and fish are migrating towards the poles. So there's a lot of interest in the Arctic in a lot of different ways. And so part of this is being able to ensure that the way that the arctic develops is done so in a rules based way that is about peaceful cooperation but you need to have strong deterrence and and showing that you know we will not put up with any type of violation of sovereignty like we've been seeing in ukraine
0: i want to switch again to you know your your background really is very much focused on Climate change is a national security threat, and um, we recently did some reporting. This was fascinating; I'd never heard of this before. Um, Canadian, act, Canada actually relies very heavily on these indigenous rangers, and it's this idea that everything you talked about. I mean, you're talking about the, you know, the application of technology from lubricants to to fuels to all, all sorts of things, um, and how they, and not to mention people, right? People is a big part of that. How they operate in these extreme extreme weather climates. And one of the fascinating things is is these indigenous rangers that the Canada employs, and they employ them in large part to um, allow the Canadians, to train the Canadians, frankly, how to operate in these conditions because they've been doing it for generations, right? This is, they know how, they're one of the few, you know, people that know how to live, not just survive, but live in these conditions. So um, they're, they're very useful in training and there's this, and, and you're right, you know, clearly deterrence is an important part of it, and, that, that, and this is part of that deterrence. But do you think that with climate change happening, um, is there any concern ever that these exercises or these infrastructures, assuming we're going to build more facilities, do they have an impact on the environment there? How do we balance both?
1: That's such a great question, and it is a balance for sure, um, and it's something that I think deserves much more scrutiny and this is where basically you know the indigenous partners in the arctic are crucial because you know as you alluded to they know how to not just survive but to thrive in these conditions and part of that is also the the world view that they have where it, it's much more about about living in relationship with the place with the land as opposed to a more, you know, the, the, the kind of more dominant philosophy that that has really driven so much of, you know, of kind of Western relationship to nature is much more about needing to dominate the environment in order to survive. But it's really, you know, that's a real misunderstanding of the very basic, truth, which is that humans are not separate from the environment. We are a part of it. And if the environment is not doing well, then ultimately we will not be doing well. And unless we can really understand that and embody that knowledge and have that be reflected in our decision-making, we will not get this right in the long term.
0: If I can stick with the Arctic. And and my final question to you is, you know, I, I think for many of us, myself included, you know, the Arctic is something We probably haven't you know really considered especially from a national from a national security standpoint clearly it's something that has happened uh has been sort of started to move up ahead in the priorities over the last few years but you know for someone who's who's studied the arctic just what is the most interesting thing that you would say that most people don't really know about the arctic
1: oh my gosh that's so hard there's so many fascinating things about the arctic (laughs) i was on healy in 2019 up in the arctic with u.s coast guard and that was just very valuable um, experience. There's really nothing like gaining that operational experience to make you realize not just intellectually the challenges that we're talking about, but just on a day-to-day, you know, moment-to-moment lived experience. It's a whole different way of really understanding the challenges that, that we're dealing with. And when we talk about extreme conditions and operational challenges and, you know, issues around communications in the high latitudes, that all just, it's one thing, like I said, to intellectually understand it, but I would highly recommend getting that experience. But I guess something that's like a misconception of the Arctic that irks me every time I hear it because it's just so far from the truth is this idea of the Arctic as a barren wasteland There's really nothing that could be further from the truth because the biodiversity that exists in the Arctic is just absolutely remarkable and there's just so much beauty and just so much incredible life and and so many um, species that are able to, to survive in very extreme environments. So I have immense respect for, you know, for life in the Arctic in general.
2: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: At any given time, there's a lot happening in the Arctic. One of the biggest players, as I discussed with Marisol, is NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's a partnership between the American and Canadian militaries, focusing on keeping North American airspace secure. In the absence of actual attacks on our soil to include our airspace, Most of what NORAD deals in is training exercises. When we spoke with Canadian Major General Eric Kenny, he was in the midst of leading one such training exercise, Operation Noble Defender. When we spoke last month, it was just days before we found out that four U.S. Marines had died during a similar training exercise, Operation Cold Response, run by NATO in Norway. Don't let the word training fool you. These exercises are dangerous, but they're also necessary, as Major General Kenny
2: told us. Operation Noble Defender is an air defense operation and it's running from March 14th to the 17th of 2022. It involves aircraft and personnel from the Royal Canadian Air Force and the US Air Force. Specifically on the Canadian side, we're involving our Canadian CF-18s and our air to refueler, which is an Airbus 310. And on the US side, uh, providing US Air Force air to refuelers that are participating in multiple locations We have assets in Whitehorse, Yukon, Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, Goose Bay in Newfoundland, Labrador. We have assets as well in Thule, Greenland, and just as far north as Canadian Forces Station Alert and Nunavut. All that is being controlled by our aerospace controllers located in North Bay, Ontario, and then commanded by my headquarters based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Having an opportunity to work seamlessly together in a larger fashion to go after, in this particular case, aircraft and cruise missile threats replicated by U.S. assets pulls together the entire enterprise and in a seamless fashion uh, showcases our capabilities, but at the same time confirms our readiness in uh, the most northern portions of our region.
0: And and that is a really important place to start Obviously, the context of when this has happened, and I know that these operations are planned, you know, months, if not a year in advance, but clearly we're in a moment in time, General, where we're in this dramatic shift in Ukraine. We have the Russians, for which for many years, um, during the height of the Cold War, I mean, that's the Soviet Union was clearly part of the calculus of why NORAD came to be, right? This idea of deterrence. You know, when you talk about operations, especially in close to the Arctic, I think there's there's two things that I, I think there's, are... Absolutely fascinating. One is the ability to operate in, you know, such extreme environments. But secondly, when you have a bilateral operation, when you have this, as you said, you know, this ability, you're you're showcasing some of these abilities. What is it that you hope that we hope that you know adversaries like Russia and China who are, who are no doubt taking note of this? What do you hope that they see? Is deterrence part of the ability to project power for them to see these display of sort of joint interoperability, the ability to the United States and the Canadians to, you know, conduct missions together?
2: So as you stated, NORAD was put together initially based on uh, the Soviet Union threat. Over time, our focus has has been to provide aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning on our approaches and within North America against any adversary. One of those, of course, would be Russia. Now, we have watched closely over decades uh, what Russia has been doing and recognizing the current invasion within Ukraine, this operation that we're doing this week was uh, put together many months ago before that invasion. But to be clear, we, we, have, we know Russia's capabilities, and uh, I think it reinforces the importance of what we do within the NORAD mission set to provide air defense, 24 and 7365, as well in the context of uh, climate change whereby we're seeing you know, the sea ice diminishing, competition resources increasing in the Arctic, Therefore, at the NORAD enterprise, we need to make sure that our ability to monitor and control airspace, in particular that over North America, becomes just as important, if not more important, than in the past.
0: You know, just looking at your bio, you're you're a Hornet pilot by trade. Um, you've been doing this, you know, practicing your craft since the mid '90s. Um, you've been in Kosovo and Bosnia. Um, you've been Watching the you know the global war on terror for the last twenty years, this is a pretty interesting shift that we're seeing here. I mean, your career has spanned the, the full gamut in terms of post Cold War global war on terror, and now whatever this epic that we're in right now. Where do you see in terms of you know conventional military forces? Do you see this pivot towards pure adversaries? I mean, and if I could, you know, from your early days as an F eighteen pilot, as a brand new F eighteen pilot training against the threat. Um, then going to you know, terror, counterterrorism and now being back to that peer adversary threat, how has that changed? How, how Your personal experience, how have you sort of seen uh, the military, the Canadian military, NORAD, all these you know, Western things, how have they changed in terms of uh, what the threat they're countering? And not to mention you, you talked about global warming, especially when it relates to the Arctic. It, it seems like there's been a pretty dramatic, even just over your career,
2: of, of shifts here that are happening. My career started off at the end of the Cold War. And as you just highlighted, we have been involved in many different operations around the world, whether that be uh, in places such as Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, for various reasons that you've described. We have watched though, over uh, the last decade plus, the buildup of capabilities in Russia. Uh, We do watch very closely, of course, what's going on in China, Iran, North Korea, and those violent extremist organizations that you mentioned. And what we're seeing play out on the national scene, and as we have been discussing for several years, is the rise of great power competition and the ability of nations or actors to work below the threshold of conflict, but then, uh, when required, also go beyond that in a more overt presence I think it just reinforces what we have been doing and training for for years, and that is to be able to uh, operate in an environment that has uh, pure adversaries, which we know exist, and therefore developing capabilities and tactics that allow us, if required, to be able to deter, or sorry, to start off to deter, but if required, deny and or defeat any of those adversaries that wish to do us harm.
0: That is, a, that is a lot of um, you know doctrine and, and sort of military speak. If I can just, a, as a brand new F-18 pilot, what does the world look like to a brand new F-18 pilot today in the Canadian Air Force than what it did to a brand new F-18 pilot in, say, the mid-90s, the end of the Cold War? What is the difference? What does it look like?
2: Let's say the difference, when I started off, we, of course, were um, ready to do the mission, but it wasn't overly active at least up until 9-11 occurred. And then our shift became on the hijack 9-11 scenario type focus. Having said that, our newest pilots that are going through that are being trained right now and operating are just like everybody else living in an environment whereby the need uh, to defend your homeland has been all of a sudden uh, recognized by all those in North America in particular as something that is no longer a sanctuary, whereby we need to uh, be ready to deter, deny or defeat those threats that come in North America. So the difference, I would say, from when I started off was I would expect to deploy to other areas of the world to be able to do my mission. Whereas going forward, a lot of our missions will be done in the homeland. Doesn't mean we won't do things outside of the homeland, but they'll be focused on very key, I believe, peer competitors, who continue to build up their capabilities.
0: How important is this concept, this Cold War concept of deterrence right now, to sort of um, convince adversaries to not, you know, kind of stay in their lane? Is this something that is, again, part of the cornerstone of of what you're doing with Noble Defender and operations? Is that to highlight um, capabilities? Is that in this concept, sort of, of deterrence?
2: So we look at it as globally integrated deterrence. We need to recognize that what goes on in Europe, what goes on in the Middle East, what goes on in Africa, has an impact or a connection ultimately to what's going on within North America. We're seeing that play out right now with the Russian invasion in the Ukraine. So NORAD is, is a layer within that overall globally integrated deterrence, working closely with all our allies, partners, in this particular case, US and Canada for NORAD, but as well within NATO, the UN and other constructs, we need to come together to ensure that what we do in uh, security and defense is coordinated, synchronized, and ultimately successful in achieving a deterrence against different adversaries who wish to do us harm or have other national interests that are not aligned with us. What we try to do in the Arctic specifically is get to all of our Ford operating locations to test our response, test our system and equipment, make sure that our air defense procedures are well-practiced. And it, it does contribute, we believe, to a deterrence. If you have a force that is not able to do its mission, I would argue that you're not providing a level of deterrence that you would expect. So by doing this particular operation, there is a deterrence message that is being passed while we look to confirm our overall capabilities to respond.
0: And look, we've, we've watched in Ukraine where deterrence in that case didn't work and it's completely on the Russians. Uh, I don't want to say for that failure, but it's completely on their end to have gone in there. There's no justification at all for the invasion of Ukraine. And as we watch, you know, Russia's capabilities unfold, I think there's a lot of surprise in how objectively how Poorly in many ways, the Russians have performed. Um, you know whether it's the, the just joint operations; they just don't seem to have coordination. Uh, without going into the specifics, is there something that you look at, sort of Russian operations in Ukraine? And when you think about this, you know, U.S. and Canadian capabilities and this deterrence mission, is there something that perhaps surprised you? Is there something that you think that warrants um, additional? Operations to highlight those capabilities. Is there is there something from the the way that the Russians have conducted themselves that needs to be countered, or perhaps is a surprise, uh, or perhaps a surprise again in in their capabilities?
2: We're seeing Russia use a lot of the capabilities they've developed over the last decade. It's validating a lot of what we understood from their capabilities. At the same time, as you've mentioned, they are challenged in what they're trying to achieve, which of course were. you know, we're watching very closely. Having said that, it doesn't take away how we do our mission or what we believe is the right capabilities to continue to modernize our force. I, I In fact, I think it reinforces some of the decisions that we've been making as well as uh, some of the, the capabilities that we say we require in order to continue to modernize our force to be able to deter in an integrated fashion, as mentioned. Uh, countries such as Russia going forward. Got it. Uh, you know,
0: you have such a, <laughs> it is such a uh, deep portfolio of things that you are responding, and not to mention you're in a fascinating career. Is there something about this position that you would see as the highlight? What on a day to day basis? And there's just a lot of cool stuff. If I can sort of geek out here for a second, what's your favorite part of the job?
2: favorite part of the job is seeing our people do what they have trained to do for their entire career, to showcase their commitment and their professionalism, delivering on defense and the mission that they've been given. We have deployed members around the world to include on the Homeland Defense mission set, and each day they impress me. Along with my chief, Chief Front Officer Campbell, We're going around just talking to them today, in fact, as they're doing the mission out of Yellowknife, and they are motivated. They want to know what's next. They want to know that we are taking care of their families. And as long as we're doing that, then they will achieve that mission in whatever environment we put them in. But it's important that we do put them in the different environments, because that ultimately builds their, their resilience and their readiness to be able to operate for whatever may come next. And that's always the the challenge is we don't know what's going to be next but when it does come uh, and i and as you mentioned i do hold a couple of portfolios the Canadian rad region is one of them Uh, but as the person responsible to generate air power capabilities for the royal canadian air force i can tell you that we have a a force who's committed and wants to do good and when they do get uh, put on the mission we'll achieve amazing things
0: You know, I I would be remiss if there is one capability that I would like to see NORAD increase, and that is uh, your ability to track that wily Santa. (laughs) It's every year. I think a lot of uh, probably American kids uh, here, and I'm sure Canadian as well, you know, the Santa tracker that comes out of NORAD is actually probably, interestingly enough, one of your most publicly successful, you know, things. Uh, And there's a reality. What if you had to speak to both the American and Canadian people in terms of, the importance of what NORAD does for them on a day to day basis. Just in closing, how would you describe it?
2: So, I've been obviously involved with NORAD Track Center for many years. In fact, I was a NORAD Track Center escort <laughs> pilot uh, a while back when I was in Cold Lake. And I, I think it allows us to explain to Canadians and Americans what we do within the NORAD mission set, but it pulls together the all-domain awareness, the sensors, the assets, the personnel, and the training, obviously through a NORAD lens, but showcases what we're able to do and that provides a very hopefully clear message on our capabilities and therefore a deterrence as we move forward. The power of two nations coming together with shared interests in bi national command, only one in the world, is um, something that I think is profound and ultimately very powerful.
0: Thanks once again to Major General Kenny and Marisol Maddox for joining us. And as always, let's continue the conversation on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and yes, even TikTok. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really does help us both grow and bring you this original content. As always, until next time, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek.